Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is one of the hosts of the super fun double feature podcast, Nashville CA, and a baker extraordinaire under the name Sean of the Bread. Please welcome Sean Perry. Hi, George. Hey. How's it going, bud? Doing great. Very excited to have you back on, man. Uh, this was a really, really fun movie, so uh, we're in for a treat. Yeah, last time we watched Jason 2, but this time we went all out. Yeah. <laughs> I have never seen anything quite like this movie. It's very unique, and I'm excited to get into it, but first, let's talk about where it all started for you. I remember watching Stephen King's It on VHS when I was like seven or eight years old across the street at my neighbor's, and... I got so scared and we only watched the first tape and then everyone went to bed <laughs> and I was just like sitting there in the dark. All my friends are asleep and I'm terrified, like anxiety riddled. And so we watched the second tape in the morning and the second tape is so much dumber than the first one. The first one's <laughs> yeah. like the first half of that movie is like scary because there's kids involved. And then the second half, it's just like adults fighting a giant spider and I don't right. know what. <laughs> so... I hated horror movies after that for a long time. Like, the only one that Josh and I covered on our podcast was Tremors 2. was about the <laughs> only one that I would stand. And then I watched Dawn of the Dead remake in theaters when I was, like, 17 years old or something. And that kind of kicked it off. Then I got into The Thing, then to John Carpenter. And then from there, man, it just started going on down those lists of, like, the 100 best horror <laughs> movies ever made and all that stuff. So... Yeah, it's been about uh, 17 years for me as a horror wow. fan. Putting in the time. I respect it. And yeah, it's funny that it, it, Stephen King's It was the thing for both of us that really scared us. Oh, really? What was your experience? Because I had like serious sleep trauma for a while after watching that movie. Yeah, I, well, so I was. Uh, it was like a school trip to Washington, D.C. And so I was in the hotel room with a bunch of other like middle school aged boys and it was on TV. Like, it was just, like, on one of the, the stations because it was late at night, and so we were all like, oh, we're going to stay up late, and we're going to watch this. And the first thing that happens is a little kid named George gets fucking murdered. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is too much. I'm fucking out of here, dude. The George in this movie doesn't fare much better. I know. Big rip. It's a curse to be named it in movies, folks. You're going down. The big George lobby is not strong in Hollywood. <laughs> I'm changing that. Me and George <laughs> Lucas are changing that. So I want to talk about your show for a little bit, because I really like it. And it's you and our other pal, Josh, who was also on the Friday the 13th episode. And I'm sure that he will similarly make his way here solo as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the process. You know, you guys do two movies every episode. How does the decision-making process happen? Do you decide on, like, a theme that you want to explore and you each bring a movie do you go back and forth and one of you suggests a movie and the other one just kind of matches it? Like, how does that whole thing shake out? Yeah, so it's usually uh, one of us will just watch something and be really passionate about it or we rewatch something and want to talk about it. And then the other will bounce back. So, for instance, I I love Session 9 and it scares <laughs> the bejesus out of me still. It's one of like the only movies that gets under my skin. And so that was my proposition to Josh was, all right, what's... What's a movie that really creeps you out and gets under your skin? And so he mm -hmm. chose uh, Noroi, The Curse. And that, that was a wild, weird documentary-style <laughs> movie. Uh, really cool, though. 
And the same with guests. When we have guests on now, which we've just had our first, we let our guests pick the movie, and then Josh and I will kind of discuss it and figure it out. But we're not always on the same page, because recently we both saw a Pig in theaters. Really good. Go check it out. Yeah, I loved it. But he, when we were talking about, oh, what do we... What would you pair that with? He went with, it's like a restaurant movie. It's one night and something. I, I can't remember. Big I can't night. Remember. I believe you're correct. Yeah, I think that's it. So he went with that, and I went with Winter's Bone. which wow. was. <laughs> so he was into the food side of the movie, and sure. I was into like a character getting dragged into the murky underbelly of like a kind of criminal enterprise. Sure. Wow. So uh, we're not always eye to eye. That's funny. <laughs> Wow, well, I will say this. People should definitely see Pig, because that movie fucking ruled. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I also just saw Old recently, and that was really fun. That just I still got to see it. I'm excited to, though. Wild, mind-numbing Shyamalan kind of movie. Hey, man. <laughs> Philly boy. You know I got to get out there and support him. I read the comic it was based on, and he, he did a good job with it. It's a good story for a Shyamalan movie, so uh, check it out. Nice. Just leave your expectations at the door. Speaking of Alex Wolf, you know, we were just talking about Pig. He's in he's in old, too. Yeah, right? that guy's having a big week in theaters. <laughs> so outside of the context of your podcast, I'm curious what you think makes for, like, the ultimate double feature in terms of, you know, pairing it around an actor. Is it, like, the thematics of the movie, the setting? Like, what is it that, to you, is the ultimate through line that helps you determine what a great double feature would be? My best example, and I think my our favorite pairing that we've done so far is when movies provide commentary on each other, kind of, or one informs <laughs> on the other. And so one of our first episodes was Stalker, the Tarkovsky movie, and Annihilation, the Alex Garland movie. And in a lot of ways, Annihilation is kind of a remake, not quite a remake, but heavy homage to that movie. So that was really fun to approach basically the same story from two completely different perspectives with Tarkovsky and Garland and kind of pull apart the differences and the things that were the same. But it also just unified like what the idea of, in both those movies, the zone is. It's like this mysterious mm. world and they paired up really nicely, and they actually, I think, neither movie contradicted the other. Well, first of all, it was a great episode of your show, but also both of those movies rule, and um, I think that there is a lot of similarities that they share in a really great way, and in, in terms of what they're trying to communicate about human nature as well, I think it tends to line up pretty similarly, I would say. Yeah, and I know you're huge on Solaris, and... I have yet to watch it because for me to hit play on a Tarkovsky movie, like the <laughs> the planets have to align and the weather has to be just right and my mood has to be just right because I just it's it's tough, man. It's tough to commit to a Tarkovsky movie, you know. For sure, they're they're heavy. They're heavy time. But then I watch stupid TV for three hours easily. So what am I doing with my time, George? I don't know. <laughs> hey, man, you put creativity in, you're gonna get creativity out. That's what I always say. That is a good segue into this movie. So we're talking about Ravenous, which is from 1999. It's it's a really interesting Donner Party influenced like Western movie. I'm curious what you would pair with this for a double feature. Oh, that's that's a tricky question, man. Because 
right off the bat, my brain goes to something like Alive, which is just mm-hmm. harsh take on cannibalism. But that's not that fun. I'll let you think, and I'll say what. Please mine go is to, to start us yeah. off. And I'm going to say that I would follow this up with a palate cleanser of Buster Scruggs. Oh, that would be cool. That would be really cool. I feel like this would just be one additional part of the anthology. Yeah, because this Buster Scruggs definitely has some stories that have a weird tone. Yeah, that I mean that death one at the very end where they're all in the uh, in the carriage and everything. What was what was your favorite one in Buster Scruggs? I mean, I'm a Tom Waits boy through and through. I loved that Prospector one. I loved the Prospector one. It's like what Michael Mann does best when people are very skilled and talented at a specific procedure. <laughs> and so then you just watch right. somebody do something that they're really good at it, whether it's yeah. rob a bank or find a gold nugget. So true. So that was awesome because I, I, I love when movies, I feel like they educate me even though I'm thoroughly entertained. <laughs> All right. Pressure's on now. What's your, what's your pick for it? You know what? I'm going to go with another campy kind of survival woodsy one. I'm going to go with The Edge. Anthony Hopkins and one of the yeah. Baldwins. <laughs> I can't, I Not can't, the main one. I can't keep that zany bunch in line, man. They're all, they all mix together in my head. <laughs> Whichever one you're thinking of, it's not that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> I, seriously, right now. I Is it Stephen Baldwin that's in Biodome? I've never seen Biodome. Uh, yeah, have you seen any Polly Shores? No, uh, I mean I've seen a goofy movie. Yeah, I, I think that might just be the 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 minor age difference between us. I think might be the Polly Shore line. It might well be. <laughs> I think Stephen Baldwin is the one in the Usual Suspects. Okay, because I always thought that was Billy Baldwin. You you know what? You might be right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna look it up. We're not looking it up. No, folks. I don't care. <laughs> So you can just say your favorite subgenre, but I thought it might be fun to ask, what's the double feature that sums up your taste? Oh, man. I'm really holding your feet to the fire here. I think with my personality, it's I'm really silly, but then I also like depressive things. So I think it's got to be something like Naked Gun to lead off, (laughs) followed by, I don't know, something preposterous like Melancholia. (laughs) Or something. <laughs> wow, I love that. Oh, that's great. I think that 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 uh, that's you do it too. But yeah, so like I said, the movie we're talking about today is 1999's *Ravenous*. A super fun, very unique movie. I don't think that I've ever seen anything like this before. And it's the kind of movie where I was I was saying to you off the air that I had heard about it and I had seen like the synopsis flying around, but. Reading the synopsis just totally doesn't prepare you <laughs> for this movie because there's so much more going on than text can convey, I think. The synopsis makes this sound like this could be in the line of Dances with Wolves. Right. <laughs> like, like the synopsis reads like it's just a straight down the middle movie about, uh, you know, adventure and peril in, right. in the 1840s. <laughs> it's a trip, but... I think that it's incredible that the end result of what we got is as good as it is because this movie had a really troubled production. The story goes that right before production, the original director, uh, Milcho Manchevsky, was like, hey, studio, here's a bunch of new storyboards, and I'm going to need another two weeks for shooting. And they negotiated down to another week after Manchevsky basically went on strike 
and refused to even meet with the producers at Fox 2000 after they were looming over his shoulder to micromanage, hiring cast and crew that weren't who he wanted. But finally, after a work stoppage where the negotiations spilled over into the production schedule, they gave him the week. So good for you. (laughs) Solidarity. (laughs) I've never heard of this guy. I checked his filmography and I've never heard of any of his movies either. Yeah, me either. And I'm, I'm sure that this... He probably got blackballed a little bit after this. <laughs> but. I, this sounds like a production that's not quite on scale of Island of Dr. Moreau, but yeah. close to it from the beginning. And, you know, the studio wasn't making things easy. Overly notated dailies, including complaints about the minutiae, like the amount of dirt on the costumes was something that they specifically were pointing out. They also demanded constant rewrites, keeping Ted Griffin, the screenwriter, like right there on hand to be constantly pumping out new stuff. And... A few weeks into shooting, the tumultuous relationship reached a tipping point when the producer, Laura Ziskin, showed up to the set with a new director. <laughs> she was like, fuck off, Milcho. You're out of here, bro. And Raja Gosnell was the new the new director that they were going to put in. Who had only directed Home Alone 3 at the time. Wow. And even as a child, I knew Home Alone 3 was trash. (laughs) (laughs) That was the one. Everyone was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah, I I was watching an interview with Robert Carlyle, and it's just, it's like, when that director showed up, they just like, uh, no, this isn't gonna work. (laughs) Yeah, the cast was like, this sucks, you're wrong. Uh, And they refused to work with Raja. Um, Robert Carlyle, who you mentioned watching this interview, he plays the main antagonist of this movie. And... He wound up suggesting his business partner, Antonia Bird. He was like, she should come on. She should be the director as like a third party who isn't like a representative of the studio, basically. And she came on after 10 days of negotiation. So a lot of pushback, tight schedule on on this movie, for sure. That lack of prep for her is preposterous. And so that just, that makes the results of this movie kind of both makes sense to me of how bizarre it is, but also, <laughs> like, it, it's it's unbelievable that she was able to get this because she also was not a film director, really. She was primarily a, a live theater director. Right. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, this was such a bad experience for her that she never directed again, <laughs> in Hollywood, at least. Yeah, well, she showed up and she was like, oh, I get it. I understand why Milcho was so fucking miserable. (laughs) She said it was awful. The studio space was horrible. Their schedule was manipulative. And she was explicitly like, do not blame Manchevsky for being the issue here. (laughs) So I wonder if if they were in Slovakia or in Mexico when that production stalled out. Probably Mexico, right? I feel like Well, Mexico had a lot fewer of the, the lead actors. So maybe you, right. maybe you get the wheels turning, shoot the Mexico stuff first with Guy <laughs> Pierce, and then bring right. everyone else into Slovakia. That sounds right to me. But I think that the movie has helped along <clears throat> to still be as good as it is because it's a really solid cast. Guy Pierce is in the lead role of John Boyd, and he is really good in this. He's from LA Confidential, this is like big movie that most people know him from. But this he is so like he doesn't talk for like 25 minutes in this movie. <laughs> he no. Just he is in like shock the whole time. There's this real like feeling of him being on like the cusp of fight or flight the entire time. Yeah, he's just for the first 15 or 20 minutes, he kind of just has a thousand yard stare on him. Yeah. 
And clearly nobody can understand what he's gone through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone's like, I can't believe you did this. And he's like, it was fucking hell out there. <laughs> this movie is so loaded with character actors because you got David Arquette. I, let's just mention Jeremy Davies. He sucks. He's a piece of shit. He's a decent <laughs> actor, but uh, fuck that guy. So too, Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> oh, sorry, not Jeremy Davies. I meant Jeffrey Jones. Sorry, okay, sorry, I don't know sorry me, Jeremy Davies. Davies. Oh, no, I just threw dirt on Jeremy Davies' name. Jeffrey Jones <laughs> is the piece of shit. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> uh, but my, oh, God, I love this guy, Neil McDonough. You know Neil McDonough He's because so his eyes have burned a hole into your soul at some point in your life. That's absolutely correct. The man has laser eyes. It's unbelievable. It's, I almost wish sometimes in post they would, like, turn his eyes down a little bit. They're that distracting <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the reverse of uh cameron diaz always asked to make her eyes bluer and bluer in post for those movies yeah they're they're the opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> we've talked about those guys but the aforementioned robert carlisle turning an absolute heater of a performance he's so good in this movie he's good in everything but he's one of those men that's just I think the Scottish accent helps him, and so they made such a smart decision in this movie to just write him as a Scottish immigrant so he can keep that wonderful accent and rhythm that he has. Yeah. He's so good. I you know, I love him in train spotting. I still contend that the intro to twenty eight weeks later is one of the best horror sequences ever. He's so good in this, he's so charismatic. And he's also very creepy in it, which is hugely important because so much of the atmosphere of this movie really hinges on him. Yeah, and also his chemistry with Guy Pierce. And mm -hmm. having not seen Guy Pierce in too much stuff, he's usually pretty reserved, so I feel like Carlisle's kind of pulling it out of him. Because if you see Memento, I mean, rightfully so, but Guy Pierce is really playing it subdued and keeping his cards close to mm -hmm. the vest in that movie. Yeah, definitely he is. I also, we got to make sure that we point out the music of this movie. I know, I mean, it will come up over and over again, but this the music is a co-production between Michael Nyman, who is a commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire for his work in both film and opera. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy is put in the work as well. And Damon Albarn, lead vocalist and lyricist for Blur and head gorilla from the gorillas. <laughs> so it's this really interesting blend of modernity and classicism that I think it, it, it permeates the entirety of the movie in terms of the style of it, the way that it's shot and everything. But I think that it really starts with the music. The, the music is everything in this movie. I, I, it just, it would not work with a traditional score. Something wouldn't add up. And the, it's because mm -hmm. the music is, disjointed it has that modern with that classic but then also you get odd timing sequences in some of them you can tell that some of them are like a tape loop that damon albarn did and so you just get like this accordion loop that's a little four second loop and then you get classical layered on top of that the thing i love with so many of these songs is that it feels like they were either playing to the edit or the edit plays to the movie, but either way, there's so many times in this where the music swells and swells, and then when the music gets to its absolute biggest point, there's a big reveal or some big shit yeah. happens in the movie. And so I, it's so cool, man. I love this music so much. The reason I love this movie so much is because so many times when we watch movies, we're exposed to 
mediocrity or producers who aren't willing to take a chance on something. And so, especially with a big budget, this had $12 million budget, so that's nothing to sneeze at. So to take a risk like this, and this movie takes so many risks, that it, it completely jumps over mediocrity. And it's, it's a very polarizing movie. You either, I think, are really affected by this movie or you're not on board with it at all. But I think it would be hard to be lukewarm with this. And I think that's a sign of yeah. really good art. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're right about those the, the pieces of it kind of work in conjunction as far as the edit and the, and the music. Because I noticed in particular that it also extended to the sound effects as well. And, and the way that the, the sound editing played in as well. You know, when he goes to show his shoulder... There's like the big crash of thunder to like punctuate his like reveal. That, <laughs> and it's like, okay, I see what you're doing here. Oh yeah. No, there's a there's a lot of little cues like that throughout this movie that are really funny but also build into the atmosphere. So this opened in March of nineteen ninety nine. Never really had a chance <laughs> because it was sandwiched in between analyze this, forces of nature. Uh, and 10 things I hate about you and the matrix. So oh, no. those are oh, some no. heavy hitters. Oh, no. I mean, this movie is already impossible to market as it is. Yeah. And then you add in the matrix and Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro. Oh God, not a chance. Never stood a chance. Uh, yeah. This, the $12 million budget, $2 million return is a bummer. Yeah. Big time flop. Like you said, $2 million just over uh, on it. And, uh, unfortunately, that polarization did come into effect because the critical reception was pretty poor. I did check in with Raj, who actually liked this one, although he did, as usual, he was unable to just pay it a straightforward compliment. He said, the film setup is more fun than its payoff, but it's the kind of movie where you savor the texture of the filmmaking, even when the story strays into shapeless gore. So can I say thanks, I think you're thanks, I, thanks for nothing, Raj. As as a fan of this show, who I frequently listen to, I think you're a little hard on old Raj, man. No way. What? No way. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> Come on, man. Poor old Roger Ebert. He's just oh, read his reviews with a grain of salt. Come on, George, lighten get, up. Get some taste, Raj. Get oh some taste. God. Don't be so Philadelphia, man. Come on, be <laughs> California. Relax. Philly till I die, baby. <laughs> Philly till I die. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into the actual movie. Please do. I think that you, you get this incredible tone setter right away because it opens, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it opens with a quote from Nietzsche that says, He that fights with monsters should see to it that he himself does not become a monster. Classic Nietzsche, stare into the void, it stares back kind of Right thing. off the bat, I'm like, this is an art house movie. This is going to be like <laughs> some serious metaphor about the human condition. You know, this is this yeah. going to be a serious movie. It, and it lingers there for a little bit, too. And so I, w I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, all right, we're going with Nietzsche. It's a big swing. And then it's followed up by Eat Me, Anonymous. <laughs> Oh, if you're if you're not on board with that, you're probably never going to be on board with this movie. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I respect the hell out of that. Cut your losses, just be like, you know what? Set it set it up nice and early so that people know if it's for them or not. 
And then we can all go our, our happy ways. And like you said, that comes in, the eat me from Anonymous, comes in with a big slamming, like a big judge's yeah. gavel sound effect kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the beginning, there's a lot of like very emphatic thuds that happen. When the actual title shows up as well, something very similar happens. Yeah. But we join John Boyd during the Mexican-American War, and he's being promoted to captain for infiltrating enemy ranks to capture a command post. This opening scene of them eating steaks is just like the most disgusting food scene I think I've ever seen. Do you have food problems in movies? Because I have really bad food problems with movies. I mean, I definitely get grossed out. I, it's never, I'm never like, oh, I can't watch this. But it's, I'm like, oh, that's fucking disgusting. This one wasn't that bad. Because I, I think it's, this one was just a lot of shots of like knives cutting up steaks on plates Slurping. and stuff it was the noise though was but, like, no it's <laughs> don't do that george i'm about to throw my headphones at across the country into philadelphia and hit you in the head with them <laughs> all right the word like my nightmare scene is in one of the lord of the rings movies where it's like the mad king is eating tomatoes and shit and it's just oh, like yeah. oh god it's the <laughs> grossest thing it makes me when <laughs> movies use mouth noises of like antagonistic characters or whatever like to emphasize how <laughs> evil they are it drives me up the wall it's like one of my biggest pet wow. peeves that's incredible well you picked a hell of a movie for that man yeah yeah because uh right after <laughs> this the title card we get some good old puking <laughs> classic classic i mean he's he's having flashbacks of the grotesquerie of combat and the stakes are reminiscent of the ground soaked in blood. And yeah, he runs off and he, he pukes. And the title slams into place right next to his head. Summons the title card with his vomit. Yeah. And, you know, but let's go the opposite way. Puking. I can watch puking all day in movies and not be affected in the slightest. <laughs> well, I respect that. <laughs> the general says he's no hero because of the method that he achieved this victory which involved pretending to be dead in a fit of terror mid-battle and laying down and then eventually sneaking out of the pile of bodies. Yeah, he just... I think whatever fucking works, right? Uh, yeah, I've always... What's that book, uh, Red Batch of Courage or something, where a kid runs yeah, away yeah, from yeah. the war? I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, kid, run away. There's no shame in that. Like, get your yeah. ass out war of sucks, there. sucks, in my opinion. Oh, dude, if I was drafted, I am going to Mexico or Canada. Like, fuck that. I am not in Hell part yeah. of that. But yeah, he, so there's a guy yelling, Boyd, help me! And he just lies down <laughs> in the sand and just goes face down. <laughs> yeah, that guy yelling, Boyd, help me. I don't know what he really expected from, from Boyd over there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Whatever he expected, it wasn't that. It wasn't. <laughs> he was like, oh, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted was for you to lay down. But so the general sends him off to Fort Spencer in California as sort of an exile. This place is run down as hell. It's up in the snowy Sierra Nevada mountains and run by uh, Colonel Hart, who is played by Jeffrey Jones. And Colonel Hart seems like a nice enough guy, but he warns Boyd that this place thrives on tedium, which that is hell. I love this part because as he's giving the kind of Fort Spencer exposition history, what, what life is like here, the background music sounds like 12-year-olds playing their instruments. <laughs> so it's a bunch of out-of-tune, out-of-time violins and cellos and stuff trying to play, and it just sounds like children. <laughs> and it gives you such a feel for, like, okay, this is not efficient military outpost. Right. This is just, like, a broken <laughs> group of men out here just scratching by. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I you're exactly right because he tells them about the rest of the gang, which is a skeleton crew on account of the out of the way nature of the fort. So there's that going on. But then you also get Private Toffler, who is way into God, Major Knox, who's a drunk, the Warrior, Private Reich, who is uh, Neil himself, Neil McDonough, his- and his little intro is so fucking funny with the quick scream in the cold water. It made me laugh out loud so hard. That hard cut gets me every time because he's he clearly <laughs> got ripped for this movie. So Neil McDonough is jacked, standing in a freezing river, screaming with his laser eyes going mad. It's, <laughs> I love it. I love that cut so it's much. It's very funny. And then you get uh, George and Martha, who are Native American scouts that were there when they arrived. Martha is quiet. And George has been known to smoke the pipe with Private Cleves, <laughs> so can't relate to that. Just know that David Arquette, who plays <laughs> Private Cleves, is going 100% this entire movie. It's like <laughs> if Dewey were high off his ass on opiates or whatever from Scream, were then transported back in time. This is what this character is. Yeah, he's, he's perhaps a bit too fond of smoking, uh, they say. And we see at dinner that night that they are not exactly the best of pals, this this motley band here. No. That's kind of a scary thing is being trapped in the wilderness with five dudes. <laughs> and it's like, what if you all hate each other? Yeah. I could easily see how you get like camp madness, especially in the winter months. if People end up just going yep. crazy and killing each other and stuff. <laughs> it was a tough time, man. Those, those westward expansion people. Good on them. But <laughs> they that, were that hardy. was brutal, dude. <laughs> For sure, for sure. Martha and Cleves head off on a supply run, and while Boyd and Hart chat over a drink, they're surprised by someone outside the window. And I, this happens pretty early on, and so I was like kind of surprised <laughs> by it as well. Like they look out the window, and all of a sudden there's just someone there, and I was like, "Ooh!" Right before this, I had that? a question for you. We see a little flashback of Boyd, and he's under like a dog pile of bodies, and he talks about the blood from right. his major dripping down his throat. Have you ever been at the bottom of a dog pile, and do you get claustrophobic? Um, I have not ever been at the bottom of a dog pile because I am a big, heavy guy, <laughs> so I am able to flip people over usually. There you go. Are you claustrophobic? <laughs> I do also not really get claustrophobic. It's, I mean, you would think that I would be, again, as a bigger guy, but uh, it doesn't really hit me that bad. Playing sports as a kid, there's like one or two times where I was on the bottom of a dog pile. And even just for like a split second of just being smothered under a pile of human beings, <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> it's scary. I, I can imagine it being scary for sure. Especially, you know, the situation that uh, he's being put in around it uh, certainly seems like it, it would have already been pretty stressful to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, like you said, Carlisle shows up. Robert Carlyle does. And that's just like right as this movie is starting to feel a little bit slow with this intro, Calhoun, as we find out later, Calhoun shows up and all of a sudden this movie is taking off like a rocket. Yeah, he, he collapses out there from the cold and frostbite and he gets brought inside. And when he awakes, he reveals himself as Calhoun, uh, having been part of a wagon train when Colonel Ives, promising a shortcut, instead takes them on a path that traps them in the snow for three months. Classic shortcut, am I right? Yeah, and he wakes up... In a jacuzzi next to an open fire indoors in a snowy cabin. So he wakes up yeah. in like the coziest place in the world under a bench of like heavy fur blankets and stuff. <laughs> it looks, if it weren't life or death situation, it looks like a really nice place to stay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
He explains that when they were trapped out in the snow, they quickly went through the oxen, horses, and even his dog. And then one day, while he was very conveniently for him out collecting the wood, uh, he returned home to find them cooking up the person who just died of malnourishment. Now, let's talk about this. Do you remember that foot taco guy? (laughs) No. Oh, man. The Fafitas? (laughs) I mean... Listen, I'll talk about fajitas all damn day. But <laughs> no, what's what's foot taco? So this guy was in a motorcycle accident, and he lost his foot. And he got the doctors to give him his foot back. And because he had always said that he would only eat human meat if it was ethically sourced, it doesn't get much more ethically than your own. And so he took this meat home and he made it into foot tacos. (laughs) And there are pictures of it all along the way. It's fucking disgusting to look at. And it was the kind of thing where I had always been like, yeah, I bet that if it was like handed to me, I would do it. And then like when I was really confronted with the idea of this guy eating his own foot, I was like, this is like the grossest shit I've ever seen in my fucking life. It, don't eat the foot. <laughs> like, <God. laughs> yeah, it's I, not good Because I'm with you. I've always been with. of the same camp of like, if push came to shove, I would eat somebody's butt. You know? <laughs> but a butt, sure. a butt, a thigh, a calf, those are all money. Bicep, yeah. not a foot. <laughs> what are you getting from a foot? Just stringy tendons. Uh, that's what he had. I, get, I think that that's why he uh, turned into tacos is so uh, he could, you know, chop up the meat a little bit and, and what if put it put it on something. What if he burned the meat? Wouldn't that just be a bummer <laughs> of an experiment? Just he fucked it up in the pan and it caught on fire. And- Starts looking at the other foot like. <laughs> <laughs> I love that after Calhoun describes their descent into cannibalism, he goes, then things got out of hand. Yes. I love then things got out of hand because that's when the movie really, or the music really kicks in. And it's like, oh, what do you mean that's when things got out of hand? (laughs) Because now they all have a taste for meat. And it sounds like Mm. they're eating far beyond what they need to be eating. Uh, pace-wise. That's right. That's right. They say that the hunger got more intense, and uh, he said Ives in particular got crazy and started murdering people to eat them. Calhoun fled in an act of cowardice that speaks to Boyd. Just like 28 weeks later, man, once again, Robert Carlyle, coward in all movies. (laughs) He's got a look. (laughs) (laughs) He does play afraid really well. The men gather supplies to go out searching for Ives and the woman that Calhoun left behind. George, however, warns them about the Wendigo myth, that people who eat other people can steal their strength, getting stronger and stronger, but that the hunger is demonic and insatiable. I noticed you said Wendigo. This movie hits the Wendigo, and I don't know what's correct, but every other thing has said Wendigo that I've seen in media. <laughs> but this says Wendigo, and I think that sounds better. So I'm a Wendigo man, personally. I, I respect it. <laughs> I like this point because they asked George, like, oh, do, you, do native people still do this? Do they still consume flesh? And he's like, oh, white men do it every Sunday. Burn. Fucking got your asses, guys. So, uh, <laughs> I'd say this is a good point to mention. Two heavy allegories, I'd say, in this movie are... The consumption of flesh in a Christian sense 
and then the consumption just of the land and of the West by right, uh, Manifest Destiny and Westward Expansion. Yeah. So those two things are definitely... And then uh, some heavy homoeroticism, I would say, are like the three major themes that <laughs> kind of carry throughout this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also I like the Wendigo slash Wendigo uh, myth. I think that it's it's a good and it's spooky and it's kind of vampiric in a way. There's like an element of vampirism to it and like the, the stealing their strength thing and, and the intense hunger pangs. They had a little bit of their day in the sun, so to speak, uh, with Until Dawn, which is a game that I like a lot that deals with the Wendigo storyline. I played that. It was good. It's fun. I was really frustrated with how some of the characters were behaving, though. <laughs> That's on you. No, it wasn't. You choose how they behave. <laughs> Sometimes I would choose an option, and then my character would argue things in a way that I was not wanting him to argue things. And things would get out of hand, and then people would split up and storm off, and you shouldn't do that. And That was a fun game, though. I don't know, man. Sounds like you should get better at the game. Yeah. <laughs> guess so probably <laughs> but they leave Knox in charge and they head off and it's it's goofy and these like fun goggles that they all have they're all like wearing different kinds of goggles and each one is sillier than the last and this song as they're leaving it goes from like this beautiful string quartet that's like these swelling strings and it's absolutely beautiful to then someone on like a ukulele playing the Oh Susanna riff. <laughs> and it's like the music is so discombobulated in this movie. I love it. Because it's like, <laughs> it's this weird blend as they're going on this trip. It's like comforting and beautiful as they're watching walking through nature. Yet it's still like the music is lonely at the same time. It's this weird mixture of warmth and yet isolation and loneliness that I get from the soundtrack. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that it, it definitely speaks to the, the content of the movie as well. You know, I think that that plays right into what's happening on screen, which is that means that the, the music is effective. These goggles in this sequence are amazing <laughs> yeah. because like Carlisle's goggles look kind of steampunk. Guy Pierce's, they look like owl eyes. Like some of them have yeah. almost like fur or something. Everybody looks yeah, they're fun. so goofball. Later on, when Guy <laughs> Pierce is having a conversation, a full-on conversation with Robert Carlyle, and Carlyle's wearing those goggles that make him look like he has bug eyes for the whole scene. <laughs> it's just he's Bono. Just cracks. That that's wow. You're so spot on. That had heavy Bono influence. <laughs> I think Toffler also wearing his goofy goggles finds a bone, but he also falls down a cliff. So, uh, win some, lose some, I guess. Yeah. So Reich jumps down to help him out. And I don't know if it's just a trick of the camera, but where these two actors are on the side of this cliff, it looks legitimately dangerous. Yes, definitely so. And he does not fucking hesitate. He, like, fucking runs for that shit, hops right off. I really hope that Neil McDonough was in character for this whole production. So he is just, like, that intense guy sitting off in the corner... Yeah fashioning weapons out of sticks and shit. <laughs> well, they do have to make camp where he can make some of those stick weapons because uh, Toffler is quite injured on his side there. That night, maybe my favorite scene. I mean, there's a lot of great scenes here, but the delivery when Toffler freaks the hell out that night because he was licking me. Oh my God. Friggin' Calhoun has like blood on his lips, like a freaking jabroni. 
He's been sucking on his side. He was licking me! <laughs> My favorite part, sick man outside! Yeah. I don't know oh, man. what Toffler is played like a man-child or something. Toffler <laughs> seems like he has like a 12-year-old's personnel it's very strange some of the, the acting decision but that guy he only plays meek characters because the other thing i think of him from is saving private ryan he's Oppum, right. the guy who was like the cowardly soldier that's how you want to look at him but yeah this scene is awesome and he was licking me sick man outside that has stuck with me for a long time <laughs> reich goes to kill him like immediately, which would have been the smart move. But Calhoun pretends to have been having a nightmare, and he's like, "Oh, bind me up! I insist." Yes, bind me up. And so, yeah, as they're walking away the next morning, George tells Boyd that he thinks Calhoun's a Wendigo. He tells him straight up. George is always no. As they approach, they start to get closer to the cave, and this is where the music is like, boing, 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 boing. <laughs> Boy, uh, it's the most bizarre. It feels like like a child's music box or something, but it's broken or it's out of tune or something. it just feels sinister in a very like fantastical kind of way. Yeah, and it, it's very tense as they approach this cave. I mean, again, the the music doing its job because when Reich and Boyd go to explore, Calhoun is like fucking with Toffler outside. Yeah, Calhoun like <laughs> starts like, by being dragged there, and he looks absolutely terrified to be anywhere near the cave and then i call it finger dancing because i don't know what else you would call what robert carlisle's doing outside but as he starts i don't know if he's getting overcome by the windigo spirit or if he's psyching himself up i don't know what's happening there but i know that i love it <laughs> it's going great and while that's happening inside reich stumbles across a skeleton crew of his own if you catch my meaning in that there are literally skeletons there <laughs> I, yeah, I like at this point, Reich, there's a cave inside of the cave. And so Reich yeah. and Boyd look Scary at each other stuff. like, who's going first? And Reich basically <laughs> mocks him of like, I'll go first, Captain, or whatever. And then as he's yeah. going down the <laughs> hole, he's like, hey, would you mind not pointing your rifle at me? <laughs> so it's just this great moment where like a true soldier is mocking this guy who just got promoted uh, just to get kicked out of a situation, you know? Yeah, it is really funny. And... I like Reich, you know, he it's interesting because it's very easy for that kind of character to be really antagonistic in a way that is off-putting. But I think that Neil McDonough does a great job of playing this character with enough relatability and humanity to him that it doesn't come across as off-putting and he does just feel like someone who knows what he's doing and is actually prepared and like it feels disappointed with the situation that he's in because he is a soldier. Yeah, he does not seem like a terrible guy to live with in an isolated base. He doesn't seem like yeah. that type of, like... I'm thinking of In the Abyss, the Michael Bain character, the Navy SEAL who slowly <laughs> starts to just lose his mind and become a complete dickhead right. to everyone. <laughs> or uh, Day of the Dead, as you recently talked about on this show. Same, same kind of character that you might expect. But yeah, no, Neil McDonough... Plays this with a little bit of heart. Just just enough yeah. to know that there's something there. Yeah. And he counts the corpses, and he realizes that Ives is among them, and that this was a trap all along, and Calhoun, in fact, is the one who killed everyone. And Calhoun is clawing at the dirt, 
like a dog. Dude, I was just going to mention this. So fucking freaky. It's so animalistic. It's incredible physical acting. It's awesome. Because he looks like he's just losing his mind and maybe just trying to like dig a hole to safety or something. Who knows <laughs> what he's doing? A toddler's freaking out. Hart is there yelling into the cave. The music is swelling. This is the part of the movie where it's like, I'd say this is the highest peak of tension in this entire thing. And we see that Calhoun gets a knife from the sand pit that he was digging. Oh, man, it's great. And I actually went back and I watched this scene twice because I uh, was like, are they speeding up the footage of him digging? Like, that's how intense he was. And I don't think that they were. I think that he is just going freaking nuts over there. I think that's just what you get with Carlisle. Yeah, man. He goes 110% every time. And he gets that knife and he quickly stabs Hart and he uses Hart's gun to shoot George Rip to my name, pal. We hardly knew ye. Ironically, he stabbed Hart in the stomach. Wow. Could have stabbed him in the heart. So true. So Did true. You edit that out? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I yeah. would have if you hadn't said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, George, so, yeah, George throws a hatchet at him, and Kellen uses Hart as a body shield and kills George. Poor guy. Big rip. And this is where the movie throws the biggest curveball I think I've ever been thrown musically in a movie because he goes the the soundtrack stops. Calhoun goes to shoot Toffler and the gun jams. He goes, "That's so annoying!" <laughs> and he takes off his goggles and jacket and then looks at Toffler and goes, "Run!" <laughs> and then the music—it's like a fiddle song and. It's like, what the hell is this Benny Hill yakety sax chase through the forest sequence? Incredible is what it is. I agree. Because friggin' Boyd and Reich aren't far behind either. So it is quite the Benny Hill chase scene here. My favorite part is you think it's over. And so Reich and Boyd are sneaking around in the forest. And then they see Calhoun, and Calhoun yells at them, and the music immediately comes back on, <laughs> and the chase is back on, and we have the silly Benny Hill music again. It's like, oh, I love this so much. Yeah, well, and when they find Calhoun there, they also come across the gutted Toffler. Yeah, there's a lot of evisceration in <laughs> yeah. this movie. There sure is. A lot is. of open bellies. Yeah. Hey, easy way to just stuff some some fake guts in there, and everyone looks dead. That's... that. Fair point. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where Reich shoots at Calhoun, and Calhoun seems to either just not worry about it all at all or <laughs> dodge the bullet. But one way or another, there's something going on. And this next part, Boyd wants to retreat. Boyd's just like, ah, <laughs> uh, can we just go home? And I thought it would have been really funny if right now Boyd just lay down and pretended to be dead again. <laughs> wow. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe it would have worked, you know? I hear that uh, that Calhoun is like a T-Rex, and his, his eyesight is based on vision. So, or yeah. based, on, based on movement. Everyone's eyesight is I based wish, on I vision. I wish more things followed T-Rex rules. Yeah, I agree. that more, This should be instituted. Famously, Wendigos operate on T-Rex rules. <laughs> I'm for it. Let's get a change.org petition going. <laughs> but yeah, so he wants to retreat, like you said, and Calhoun is not letting him go anywhere, so... He just fucking jumps off the cliff, takes yeah, the lead. So Reich got hit with a throwing knife, and Reich fell off the cliff. And then Boyd's like, uh, there's no way I'm going to fight you. Yeah. So see you later, dude. Toodaloo. And this was a cool shot, because it looked like they actually had somebody 
jump off the edge of this it cliff. Looked, that looks scary life. as that, fuck. <laughs> that I don't know if they had an air pad. Like I didn't see anything about that stunt, but yeah. it looked intense. Whoever did that, yeah, uh, it's incredible. By the way, there should be stunt Oscars. Yes, Oscars I agree. For stuntmen, big time. Make it happen, George. All right, I'll. You know what? You've convinced me. I'll write. I'll write to the academy. <laughs> You're a pushover, man. <laughs> but Boyd, Boyd does survive. He hits a tree. Hits every branch on the way down. <laughs> he sure does. And he suffers an awful-looking compound break in his leg in the tumble. And Reich's body tumbles down too. There is a little bit of a scuffle, but Reich winds up being dead. I read that took four hours only to shoot that entire hill tumble sequence. Holy it's shit. long. They did that in four hours. Wow. I can't... I mean, I can imagine that they wanted to get it fucking over with. <laughs> yeah. It, it... At a moment, I was like, is this going to be like They Live, where this fall <laughs> is just never ending, and they're just going to keep rolling and rolling and Hot rolling rod. for like three minutes? Yeah. <laughs> so Wright gets strung up upside down. Yeah. And Boyd's leg fun. is broken <laughs> with the bones sticking out through his pants. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. So Carlisle is out looking for them. Boyd... Does the classic movie thing of biting on a stick, because that is just as good as anesthesia. Sure. You bite on a stick, you can survive anything. And resets the bone in his leg. I did really like the like satisfied smirk that Reich had on his corpse while uh, Boyd is in pain there. Like He's like, well, I'm dead at least, and you, you're still fucking struggling here. Yeah. Neil McDonough has been dead for like 48 hours but his eyes are still open and they are still <laughs> lasers yeah. into the sky right and calhoun can smell the blood so he's he's out there too you know everyone is, is calhoun's sniffing around it's just and like a, a very funny hard cut sorry when there's um when it when he's fucking around with his broken leg there's a hard cut to our cat chopping wood Ooh, and i always like that in movies where yeah. you get something really terrible about to happen and then it hard cuts to the same sound effect but on a completely mundane scene yeah uh, that's a that's always a fun little trick that editors do yeah i like that a lot and they're just in this like neutral zone like nothing can happen really they are just waiting each other out because carl Cal, like i said calhoun can smell the, the nights turn into weeks I like how they handled this. You know, the the moon shots and the quick scenes of people just doing errands and, like, goofing around. I, I think that it's a very well-handled way to, like, communicate the time passing. Yeah, I like that Calhoun, at one point you see, like, dragging Toffler's body into the cave. And you can just hear him giggling. Yeah. And later you see him just sitting by the edge of the stream, eating what looks like a calf of... <laughs> leg bone or something like just calhoun's having a great little vacation yeah he's, cannibal. he's loving his life out there he's living it up in the sierras <laughs> man <laughs> so eventually the hunger gets so bad that boyd does in fact eat reich to stay alive and earlier boyd and calhoun had been talking about like what happens when you eat like did you feel the vitality and that vitality that Calhoun spoke of sure does come back, and he manages to not only drag his ass out of that pit, but limp his whole whole way back down to the to the base as well. And I'm gonna finally call out some of this music as well because this is, I think, where the two sensibilities are really in like perfect sync here. It's like a little bit electronica y as he's limping his way home, but they're still very much like the classic old timey music playing. I think that it's it's a really spectacular like moment of triumph for him. This song yeah, this song is called Boyd's Journey and it's awesome. It's 
It's like everything that I love about this movie. This is the one that of all the songs that like get stuck in my head from this movie and have just like wormed their way into my brain. <laughs> this is like the main one. I really like that he's worried that he's going to consume Reich's soul when he goes to eat him. He says, you're dead, you're safe. I, I have to be able to eat you. And so I like that, you know, throughout this movie, Boyd struggles with the morality, which is basically what Carlisle is trying to teach him to completely neglect and to just live for himself. Yeah. He does find, however, when he arrives back at the base, that it's been taken over by the general from the beginning. And Martha tells him that the only way to stop a Wendigo is to kill it. That there is no just going back and not being a Wendigo. Yeah, I like, I like the idea. It only takes, it never gives. Mm-hmm. And one thing you mentioned earlier about vampires, I think that this is cool and different. The hunger seems to grow exponentially mm-hmm. with the Wendigo. Whereas vampires seem to kind of have a plateaued feeding rate. Sure. This this seems like you just need more and more and more every step of the way. Right. Unceasing. The second group goes to the cave, and they find nothing there. And the general advises him to change his story, while the new colonel walks in. And why? It's Colonel Ives. Except, it's Calhoun, wearing Toffler's cross, no less. Yes. And, of course, the only person who was a witness to Calhoun (laughs) being there is Knox, who was so blackout drunk that he remembered Robert Carlyle having, like, a full bushy beard or something. (laughs) (laughs) And so I love this part, though, because when now Colonel Ives, when Calhoun walks into the room, Boyd does, like, a fainting goat move like he turns 180 and just like just collapses to the ground he and is in declare. a little puddle hiding against the wall it's yeah. just like it's him it's him <laughs> it's like oh guy pierce that was awesome man it's very funny he he really takes a swan dive there yeah and this is we up next we have the the shoulder examination which right. if you want to talk about the homoerotic talents of this movie see how robert carlisle poke both of his shoulders out for everyone else to uh, inspect and look at. I like that it shows how long it takes for him to disrobe. He has to take off a belt to take off his waist sash, to take off his giant jacket, to take off the sash around his neck, to take off the suspenders, to take off the shirt. People's attention spans were longer back then. (laughs) I guess. I guess, man. (laughs) They didn't have cell phones. Yeah. What else did they have going on? It was either fucking watch someone disrobe for 20 minutes or go to the fucking saloon. <laughs> Drink or play cards. That's about it, right? Exactly. And that's why Knox is uh, friggin' so drunk all the time. And uh, they they do this this reveal and they it, the wound that should be there is not. And there's the crash of thunder for dramatic effect. Like I said, very fun. Yeah. Boyd is starting to really experience the hunger again. And he fantasizes about killing and eating Cleves while also descending into paranoia, keeping a knife close at all times. Boyd gets that knife by walking into a room with Martha and Cleves. And he (laughs) says, I have to warn you, consider yourselves warned. Do you need this? And takes a knife. You can't just say, I have to warn you, and then not say what the warning is. That's not warning someone. (laughs) I don't know, man. They sound pretty warned to me. Yeah. That daydream, I'm never that crazy about daydream dream sequences sure character any stuff like that in movies it always feels a little cheap a little cheap yeah Yeah. if they're gonna do it they at least used it to be like here's another like gore scene 
Yeah, but seeing Guy Pierce eating David Arquette's guts as David Arquette is laughing maniacally <laughs> does make it a little bit sweeter. That's right. You know, there there are worse executions of it. So this next scene, it feels like a rainy day at school. Because everyone's <laughs> in the same room in front of the fire. Some people are playing chess. Some people are reading. Boyd's Some people just are like, cheating at chess. <laughs> <laughs> Boyd looks like full-on opiate withdrawal now at this point in the movie he's he's looking awful he's struggling for sure and uh, when calhoun like drops a book or something he freaks out and he jumps up and he has his knife out and martha is ready to stab boyd yeah look at martha right on it dude yeah she's in there martha was up faster than any of the soldiers (laughs) but calhoun isn't worried and he talks to boyd that night and he reveals that he discovered what was left of Reich and indeed finished him off. He also gives his backstory of how he started cannibalizing for real, which is that he had tuberculosis and the wagon train was going to a sanatorium because he had all kinds of other like uh, maladies and, and he was depressed and had suicidal ideation. And the native scout told him about the Wendigo. And so he, quote, just had to try and it cured him. Lo and behold. Well, and of course, he immediately kills the scout who tells him about the mythology. Right. Talk about a backfire. Yeah. Yeah, that guy was like, his last thought was like, I've made a huge mistake. (laughs) And so at this point, I wasn't positive if Calhoun caused his company to get diverted. But the next thing he says, I ate five men in three months and walked out of there happier than I've ever been, healthier than I've ever been. Wow. He's living his best life. He is. Oh, and at this point, he almost looks like Dracula. Because mm-hmm. his now his his hair is like beautifully elegant and combed back, and he has this like real suave black jacket on, and he's clean looking, and Robert Carlyle now looks um just so handsome and like you get a feeling for the regeneration that's happening with him and with Hart later. Yeah, I mean, the even just the way that he speaks is much more confident. Yeah, absolutely. And he questions Boyd about why he stopped and dismisses morality as the last bastion of a coward. He sure does. <laughs> Which, obviously, that's the kind of thing that is going to uh, rancor with, with Boyd, or draw rancor. And so he slashes out with this knife, and the blood raises the memory of the hunger for him, urged along by Calhoun. That said, Martha does save Calhoun, and Knox wants Calhoun to arrest Boyd as we see the same flames that he saw when Boyd first ate Reich, now stoked and raging along. So, you know, a little nice visual similarity there. I love when Calhoun holds his bloody hand up to his face and is mocking him with it, and he says, don't you remember the feeling of a man's strength pulsing in your veins? Oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) In an interview, Robert Carlyle said, from the beginning of this production, he read his character as, not only does he want to eat Guy Pearce, but he wants to have Guy Pearce as well. And you, you feel it, I think, more and more the closer we get to the ending, the more of a link these guys have almost in like the Hannibal TV show, like yeah. the Will and Hannibal relationship. Like by the end of these things, you don't know if these guys are going to make out or murder each other. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that it definitely comes through. It, it's not surprising to me that it's deliberate because there is a lot of homoeroticism going on and there is a lot of so, sort of like uh, double entendre work and, and uh, like these long like stares across the room at each other and everything. It's, it's very oh, deliberate. Yeah. There's some longing eyes in this movie. Mm-hmm. Martha's looking for Cleves and Calhoun is getting his hand tended to um, right. by Knox. And this is where Martha finds the decapitated horses in the barn. Right. And they all blame Boyd and Knox quickly knocks him out. Well, yeah. And she also, she goes to tell Knox that the horses are dead. And this is when the blood is dripping down from his window. And we see that Cleve's body has also been eviscerated once again. They probably Mm. use the same effect, the same prosthetic. (laughs) They just keep reusing it in this movie, probably. Hey, man, it worked twice. (laughs) Yeah. And we see that. Poor little David Arquette is no more in this movie. Big rip. I love the reveal, though, as the blood drips down onto her face. That uh, was very effective. Oh, and it's not just, like, two little drops. She gets about a half pint poured on her face. It's Carrie-esque. I was laughing really hard, but also not surprised when I read that they ran out of fake blood by the end of the production. (laughs) Because they are really (laughs) liberal with the use of it in this movie. Yeah. I wouldn't say this is an excessively gory movie, but it's... It's definitely bloody. Yes. Yeah, I mean, even just when he's, like, under the pile of corpses in the beginning, like, he's like, oh, yeah, the blood was, like, running down to my face into my mouth, and it's like, yeah, it's friggin' pouring down on him. Very bloody. The the way he says, it it was pouring down my throat. Like, I couldn't spit it out or anything. Somehow, it was just (laughs) straight passageways down the gullet. (laughs) That was where he became a Wendigo, really. It all started there. So they send Martha on foot to right. go get the general and tell him what's happened. And Calhoun goes to visit Boyd, who's chained up, and gets some of his blood, Boyd's blood, from like a bloody nose or something, on his fingers. And Calhoun essentially tastes his two fingers <laughs> in such like an erotic way yeah. that's like, holy cow, this <laughs> is Red Shoes Diary or something. <laughs> Dear 1800s penthouse, I never thought it would happen to me. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Knox is soon dispatched. Although not by Calhoun. Who should it be but General Hart, brought back from the brink by eating people with Calhoun? And they like Boyd, and so they want him to be their pal, because they've got big plans for the base. There's a real great cannibal pun before Knox gets killed, where Knox asks, can I help with the stew? And Carlisle goes, perhaps you'll contribute later. Yeah. That's great. That's a classic cannibal joke. I bet they all had real (laughs) big smirks on their face as they sat around eating that stew. I bet Carlisle was like, did you guys hear what I said to him? (laughs) Did you even hear? That's so funny. (laughs) They also, speaking of that stew, Guy Pierce is a vegetarian. (laughs) So they were like, here's this lamb stew. And he was like, I don't want to eat this. And so he would just like chew on it and then spit it out for several takes while they did this. Oh, that sounds gnarly. Yeah. Good commitment (laughs) guy Pierce. But yeah, Hart, he shows up again and and they're, they're like, we're going to take advantage of manifest destiny to cannibalize passers through, but they need a select group of people to be in on it to make sure that they can get away with it. And they're going to convert general Slauson as well. And I love that while he's telling Guy Pierce about this plan, 
Calhoun asks Hart to take over butchering Knox's body, and you can see if you look at him in the background that he's totally like feigning it, like doing absolutely nothing. Like, I I don't think that that's a Jeffrey Jones thing. I think that that's a character choice that the Hart is like, I'm not a butcher. Like, I'm not fucking doing this shit. And I think that that also plays into his willingness or his unwillingness to live as a cannibal, which comes into play later. Oh, that that's cool. I did not pick him up in the background. Yeah, because Hart basically talks about his death was drowning in a black void, and then there was nothing, and he woke up, and Calhoun was already feeding him. So he never opted into this, and so he he kind of seems like he's excited about the idea of cannibalism for about twelve hours, yeah. And then when the reality of things kind of set in, and Guy Pierce reminds him of like, don't you remember all the guys that were like serving here, and they're all dead now right yeah guy pierce essentially breaks him it's an interesting moment especially to be so to not have any attention really drawn to it but boyd continues to resist oh this is also there's some really good music playing during that scene as well but boyd (laughs) continues to resist calhoun stabs him and says hey you can eat and live or you can die from this stab and I also laughed about that stew having just, like, whole-ass potatoes getting ladled into the bowl, like, not chopped up or anything. <laughs> I was really laughing about that. Hey, man, if you're not eating potatoes like you eat an apple, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I guess I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> There's some more great tunes Boyd here, looks like Boyd looks like a zombie at yeah. this point, because he's literally, like, spitting up blood, but there's, like, chunks of stuff in there, mm. and... He looks awful. Yeah, he and sure yeah, does. this is where the music swells and it builds, and then right before he eats, the rhythm starts to go faster. And so, like, you feel once again the tension that this music is capable of bringing. And it's really great moment that builds up to his choice to like, I'm gonna, I need to live through this. If I'm gonna stop them, I have to eat this. Yeah, and and he does exactly that. He heals and he gets jailed so that he can put on this show for the approaching reinforcements, but Boyd convinces Hart to free him so that he can kill Calhoun. And Hart's only request is to be killed quickly so that he doesn't have to live this way anymore. A nice out for for Hart. I I like this character arc for him. Yeah, and I thought the blood spray onto the window was cool. It made it look like a piece of stained glass. So when Calhoun approaches, he sees... We see Calhoun through the stained glass, seeing what's happened, and realizing that his plan is probably going to shit because they kind of need they kind of need four guys to to get this cannibal family up and running (laughs) that's right but also i agree that it looks very stained glass-esque but the windows already like had like little bits of other colored glass in the corners that i thought were really interesting and so it felt like the blood splashing onto it felt very natural for the look of the windows already in a way that I thought was cool. This is one thing I could not find information on. I was wondering if a lot of the money and the budget went to building this set Mm -hmm. because it's a full on village. I mean, I'm sure a lot of those buildings are just exteriors, but still the interiors are really impressive. It looks expensive. I don't know if they shot the interiors in studio or out on location, but still the, all of this set design and production is really, really cool. Yeah, it's great looking. Calhoun ambushes Boyd, but they both manage to stab each other. <laughs> and Boyd yeah. uh, has the upper hand for, for a while here, and he beats the hell out of Calhoun. This is a really fun fight scene, but then they, they go to the ground, and that's where he makes Again, his mistake. Again, this, this reminded me of, like, they live. So, <laughs> yeah, Ives, 
Ives drops through the roof and hits him with a log. Boy stabs him with a pitchfork. Ives stabs him with a dagger from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> Raphael's dagger. Boyd hits him on the forearm with a butcher's knife. Boyd beats him with a log. Calhoun stabs him in the back with the dagger. Like this, they're just trading vicious blows back and forth. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> they got that cannibal strength. And right before this, we did see Boyd walk into a barn and eye a gigantic trap. So true. Which we will soon. <laughs> I have many questions about this. <laughs> well, uh, but I love when Boyd finishes this fight, he lowers his shoulder into the pillar that's supporting the roof and just drops the roof on Calhoun. Hell yeah. I mean, brilliant move. Unfortunately, Calhoun does arise from the rubble, but it's smart. And uh, he single-mindedly pursues Boyd, who then, yeah, shoves them both onto a huge bear trap that closes on them. Yeah, so they're right before they're holding each other, and, like, Calhoun pulls the knife out of Boyd's back and drops it on the ground, and they have this embrace where they're both six inches apart, eye to eye to eye, looking at each other, and it's this real interesting moment of, like, the connection of these two men, and maybe the the love, or I don't know what is there, but there's definitely some kind of bond between the two of them. Yeah. And then we get the yeah, boy drops him onto the trap, which swings down. I've seen bear traps. I've seen fox traps. Is this an elephant trap? This <laughs> thing's radius is like four, three foot radius. It's specifically uh, this, for humans. <laughs> you just I, had no, it. It's like, but normally like you, you catch somebody in the lake. This yeah. would catch somebody, like, half of somebody's body Bisect. would be caught in this trap. It's yeah. bizarre. <laughs> so it's as this shit's happening, Calhoun says, that was sneaky. <laughs> it was. Boyd. And he says, "And he says, if I die first, I'm going to eat you. But if you die first, what are you going to do? Bon appetit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's some good shit right there. What an outro. You gotta go out with a fun line. A funny little cutaway. At this point, we see that the general is back in camp, and he's nosing around the stew, and he starts sniffing the stew. Oh, man. And then, wouldn't you know it, fucker eats the stew. Uh, Loves it. He loves the stew. (laughs) (laughs) This guy. That's some real bad news. Where's this sequel (laughs) with the general in charge? I don't know. Unfortunately, this was, I was reading the general, the actor's last. That's right. He perished. Last role. John Spencer, who was on like the West Wing and stuff. You definitely recognize him. I always think of him as one of the guys in The Rock. He's like one of the guys that Sean Connery hates. And yeah. He's Womack. How's your bowling arm? <laughs> uh, he hangs Womack over the edge of a building by a string when he's getting a haircut. Classic. I don't know if you, have you seen The Rock? I have seen The Rock. It's wonderful. I'm a a big Nick Cage guy. That's good. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of the end of the movie. The general is eating his his stew. Martha stumbles across Boyd and the now dead Calhoun. Calhoun says, eat or die. Yeah. And then with an exhalation that's about an eight second (laughs) death breath. Death rattle. Finally dies. And then the song kicks in. Oh, it's so good. That we talked about earlier. Mm. uh, Boyd's journey kicks in again. Martha sees them and turns her back, and Martha's like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I am yeah. done. She bails. With these, with these white assholes. Get me out of here. And Boyd chooses not to eat Calhoun, but to instead die in his embrace mm-hmm. with his head on his chest like he's listening to his heart. Beautiful. It's a really sweet, really beautiful death. Absolutely. It's wonderful. 
and it's a it's a, a really fantastic movie. And and now, Sean, we've reached the point of the show where we saw about why it's not just a really really great movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start us off. This is the best horror movie ever made because it took courage from the actors' performances, from Robert Carlyle saying that of Antonia Bird that. She would encourage actors, it's okay to make mistakes. I've got your back. Just let your performance come to life. And I think that's where her theater background came out. Mm -hmm. And this movie just... I can feel a lot of passion in this movie. I can't believe that the production was as flawed as it was. (laughs) The the acting, it's such a wonderful cast of great character actors. The music is incredible. Some of the most disjointing bizarre stuff where the first time I watched this movie it, it was almost too weird for me it was recommended <laughs> to me through a forum or something and it was like I, I don't know that was like the part where like the music kicks off into the fiddle and they go into the Benny Hill chase scene <laughs> I was like this is too much but then it stuck with me and then I showed it to like my brother-in-law and I was like okay I think I love this and now I just <laughs> keep watching this movie i it's it's in my brain i listen to the soundtrack frequently like just as i'm driving around town i'll pop on the ravenous soundtrack wow it's just it's in my head and i i just in a way that not many movies can do and that's why this is the best horror movie ever made yeah i i think that you're absolutely right i think that this is the best horror movie ever made because it's wholly unique it requires everyone to be really on board with what's happening in terms of the actual like cast members and everything. Obviously, the production and the studio was not quite as on board. But the fact that it does take so many chances, that it has this interesting blend of classic and modern that permeates the entire movie. It's in the way that the movie is shot. It's in the way that the performances are given. It's in the music. It's in the editing. It's such an interesting blend of of these two time periods, and I love this setting. The Old West is, you know, fascinating, and uh, you know, a lot of bad shit went down, and so I like when it's not as glamorized, and when you see these people, like, scrapping for their lives every step of the way... I think that it it just all really comes together in a way that's incredible. The fact that it does manage to succeed with having so many things trying to pull it down, I I, I just I thought it was great. This was a movie that I hadn't seen before, but I definitely will be revisiting. I can see it already. I'm so thrilled that you you're into this because, like I said, this is a real polarizing <laughs> one for me to show people and for me to get behind. And I. I have an odd passion for this movie, and so I, I just speak about it too much and too highly, and I, so I try not to set people's expectations too high, because I know like this just is so perfectly in tune with ever what, whatever weird frequency my brain operates on. <laughs> it's like the same that this movie operates on. If people haven't seen this movie, or if you just want to listen to like the, the some of the best music I've ever heard in any movie... There's six songs. They're all on YouTube if you just look up the Ravenous soundtrack. They're Boyd's Journey, Calhoun's Story, Trek to the Cave, Run, Manifest Destiny, and End Titles. I would like End Titles to be played at my funeral service one day. That's how much I like that song. Wow. 
Well, we'll definitely include a link in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, you can check that out and uh, listen to that music after the episode because uh, the music is great. It's really great. I think that really ties the that that music really tied the room together, man. <laughs> Sean, this was so much fun, dude. Thank you for introducing me to this movie, and please tell everyone where they can listen to your wonderful podcast. Yeah, please check out Nashville, comma CA, like Nashville, California. It's me and my buddy Josh. He lives in Nashville. I live in California. Go figure. <laughs> And it's available wherever you can get your podcast. And we have our next episode about Session 9 and No Roy coming out soon. Talked with George. I think we're going to get him on in the next month or two and record an episode. Yeah, just keep an eye out. We're, we're pretty new. We're only about six episodes in, but we're having a lot of fun. And we are very long-winded with many episodes going well over three hours. So if that sounds like something you're into, and we don't, Part of the thing I like about the show is we don't rip the show. I think that's why I like your show so much, too, is that it's easy to just rip things apart, but to find the goodness in things and to find the things that you key in on, I think is more challenging and more rewarding. Yes, totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, And I totally agree that you should all check it out, especially if you have three hours to kill, because uh, it's great. Well, thank you so much for having me, dude. I really appreciate it, and I love your show. Well, it was a joy to have you, my friend, and uh, I look forward to coming onto your show as well. But as far as my plugs, you can find the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. You can find the Patreon, which is also LittleHorrorPHL. There's all kinds of bonus episodes and stuff. We just released the second mailbag episode, which is uh, Patreon-exclusive. And we got some really great questions in there, including some about Philadelphia itself that I answered. So people can check that out and uh, rate and review. If you're enjoying the show, send more mailbag questions to best little mailbag at Gmail. I think that that's everything. There's merch out there, whatever. Don't who cares? Oh, one thing that's exciting is that uh, we're coming up on episode hundred. So we got something very exciting planned for that, that I am really looking forward to personally. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but just know that it's good. (laughs) So look forward to that. Thanks, everyone. Bye.